Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 24, Act 1. Michael Wiggins' Art is Always the Answer, recorded March 30th, 2019, in New York City. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA listeners. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to tell your peeps to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts so they can get the notification first of a new episode. And always, always remember, follow us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, And that's how we grow our community. And we're so happy you're a part of it. I have to say that we have actually hit a huge benchmark. We doubled the listenership um, from last year to this year. And honestly, I really have to say a big, big thank you to you because it's all about you. So keep telling your peeps, share your experiences, have conversations, let us know, rate us on any one of those platforms and let us know how we're doing. Pop those earbuds in. Okay. So, um, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but, um, You know how I've said in the past that I coined this new phrase called feminarchy? Um, Well, um, I discovered that I, um, uh, in fact, uh, did not actually coin this phrase. Um, So recently I went to look up the etymology of archy and I typed in feminarchy and I learned that feminarchy is actually in the Urban Dictionary and has been for quite a few years, but it's not in the, I don't think it's in the real dictionary, but it's in the urban dictionary. Um, and the, the definition is, um, essentially it's like smash the patriarchy. Uh, let me read it for, for real. Here it is. Feminarchy is a society in which feminism has become the sole standard by which that society is regulated and governed. Um, there is also a, uh, improv comedic group that um, it, it sings songs, and does smash ups, smash ups, smash ups. Sorry, mash ups um, about smashing the patriarchy. Uh, they are hysterical and also on multiple social media platforms. They've performed at the Pit, which is the People's Improv Theater in New York City. Um, I hope they're they're listening. I think we like exchanged something on on the, the Insta. Um, so check them out, you know, and, um, here's, here's a good, um, uh, lesson to learn about hashtag fact checks. I'm going to still keep working, however, to further develop that definition. I will not, I will no longer claim it as my own, but, um, I will keep saying it out loud to many people, especially women, who um, are are fascinating and interesting. Like I said it to um, Liz Lerman, uh, the one and only time I ever met her. Who's she's amazing, um, and she was very intrigued. And um, a couple other like really cool women who are are speaking truth to power. So let's keep going. Ah, speaking of truth to power, or speaking of speaking of truth to power. Michael Wiggins is our guest this month. Um, 
So yeah, Michael Wiggins is one of my favorite people in the entire world. He and I over the years have had many deep conversations and I am absolutely over the moon and thrilled for you, the TA listening community to hear us chat. Um, so we sat down last spring uh, to eat some charcuterie, some roasted nuts, and uh, probably some wine. And we actually ended up talking for four hours in one sitting. I mean, what's happening? But um, instead of trying to cut all that down, because I think there's like major gems in there, what we're going to do is we're actually going to split that inter- interview in half. So this month, you'll hear the first half of our conversation, and then we'll... Um, publish the second half at another time. Uh, So in this specific segment, this act, you will learn uh, how we actually met and the beginning of Michael's journey. Here is episode 24, act one, Michael Wiggins, art is always the answer. Michael Wiggins, the Michael Wiggins. Courtney body, the Courtney body. <laughs> How are you, Michael? That's a hard question. I'm fine. I'm here. I'm excited to see you. I'm a little trepidatious about the whole idea of talking extemporaneously, but I'm willing to try it for you. And only you. You are the best. Um, one. What are we doing? I'm here. I'm well. I'm telling you. What is this? One. About? I'm here to ask the hard questions. Frankly. Who am I? But also, I'm here to guide you, so you won't be extemporaneous. Okay. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I feel taken care of. Good. Good. That's I what feel I'm, safe. That is my job. So. I don't know if you realize this, but you are podcast famous. Really? I talk about you a lot. Really? Also others, Penelope McCourty, Ah. Michael Wiggins. I mean, oh no, that's how famous you are. You're always on my brain. (laughs) Self-referential. James Miles. James Miles, the professor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Shoba Kabanakudil. Oh, a dream, a genius. Edie Demas. Edie Demas is my heart. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be here if it were not for Edie Demas. Thank you, Edie. So we, the four of them were on a panel with me um, back in September. And they were guests during season one of this podcast. And um, I had asked a question, I believe, about who is somebody who's an instigator or an influencer on you. A troublemaker. Uh And it was Shoba who was like, I have to mention Michael Wiggins. And everybody... (laughs) Everybody, including me, said, oh, <laughs> at the same time. One other person I just want to bring up who is part of this family who's not here is Michael Wiggins. <gasps> and as you can see, <laughs> Michael is a dear colleague of ours and a good friend. And I love that dude. Yeah. Love that Arts too. instigator. Yeah, oh. he, he is an instigator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there is not one conversation I have with him where... I don't leave either being frustrated or being like, wow, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> it, happened. it happened. Child. <laughs> well, I love all of those people, and they are all, every one of them that you listed, Shoba, James, Penelope, Edie, are all part of my practice and were hugely influential on my thinking. I think about them all the time uh, as I make decisions. And I think of them as my intellectual posse in some way. Yep. Uh, you, of Your course, are, are also added to that list. You are, I think, probably first among equals in that space. Unsung heroes. Mm. Yeah, I uh, have been wanting to get you on this podcast since day one. Really? Yeah, 
and now we're in season three. Season three. Time flies when you're having like whatever it is we've been having over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to I want to take us through your origin story. Origin story. (laughs) Because you are a, a hero. Or maybe an anti-hero in in the arts education world. (laughs) Famous and yet potentially infamous. Oh, Lord. (laughs) But the fact that those four and then me, those the people on that panel all were like, Michael, of course, that you are likely um, people that you are in the back of people's heads when they are making decisions. Those people and many more. I, 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 that would be a surprise. I wonder about that. I think uh, we joke about my reputation uh, as a troublemaker. I guess I'm, uh, I'm not someone that you would have a, a, a mid-range opinion about. I think it's an either-or situation mm. uh, when it comes to me. And... Uh, that's always i guess that's always yes that's my origin story it's always been the case he was trouble (laughs) we're gonna get there we're definitely gonna get there um but you know the theme of that was uh well the the panel which was a live event yeah my first live event uh i saw the photos i saw i'm aware of this event you're aware of it yeah but yet you weren't there no I was elsewhere. I don't even know where I was. That's fine. Um, but it was, it came out, it was a part of the international teaching artist conference yes. that was in New York city at the time. And the theme of that, uh, conference was arts instigator or mm. artist as instigator. Yes. So those were the themes of the questioning that was coming out. And so while people may have called you or have called you a troublemaker, really you're an instigator. You're an artist as an instigator. Yeah. And you instigate thought, you instigate action, you instigate um, shifts in energy and paradigms. And I think that's, you know, for me, as somebody who has been um, uh, your friend for a very long time, friend and colleague, that's always the way I felt. I have my, some of my most, I think my most exciting and impactful teaching experiences have been with you. And I can think of moments uh, being with you with the balance of you and me in the room thinking this is really how it, it always should be this this partnership between artists and educators uh this relationship uh the differences in the way we approach the work uh created something that was you know a, th- a third product mm. uh which made us, I think, highly effective and uh, and creative, um, because it involved uh, a tussle, and um, because the situation that you're working in, no matter what happens, you end up in a live situation. You know, we're talking about working with with people, so you know, it doesn't matter what the planning meeting said, or it doesn't matter what was on the paper. It's what's actually happening in that moment mm-hmm. that is what happened, and. Uh, I love that we were always communicating and asking questions on the fly and making decisions uh, on the fly, mm-hmm. uh, but always going in the direction I think that we had intended to go. The difference between climate and weather, you know, um, you cannot say what's going to happen in that in that instant, but you can grab that instant and keep moving uh, along in the in the same general direction toward your toward your goal. And I think that's a space that you were, uh, you and I were always in, mm. and that the work should always be in, which is, you know, respectful of the reality of what is happening, and infinitely flexible to to that moment. Just being able to grab whatever comes and and go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting that you're saying that. I mean, I I can't wait to talk about those those teaching moments, but. Um, that's how I feel about being a host too, yeah. is I have to be completely responsive, completely tuned and, um, not distracted or thinking about what's the next thing. And da, da, da. I ha that's that those skill sets are actually what I use right. to have these conversations. And, and you're going to have fun today because you know, I will never <laughs> directly answer any of your questions. I, uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> what were we talking about again? Mm. So, 
first I do want, I do want to dig into, well, we haven't really established like how we met. So let's start there. How did we meet? How did you, what do you remember when you first met me or what do you, what's your first memory of me? I have always known you. Mm-hmm. Things that I, I think you remind me of a, of a, of a very good song, which is when you hear a really good song, you think to yourself, wow, I, some part of you thinks that you already knew it. So like you're able to sing it right back or sing along with it almost immediately. It's not like you hear a really good song and then you're like, huh. And then you have to like practice, like you're like right in with it already. And so I remember, I know I met you somewhere at the New Vic and you went because of, I think your approach to life and the way we have intersected, you have just folded into my experience. Mm. I've always wanted to know someone like you, so I, I, I'm, you came along just yeah. when I needed you. Oh, So I, I, can, I can mark the time at least. Can you? Mm-hmm. It was in the 2000s, right? It was in the 2000s. Within the last in the two decades. In the aughts. <laughs> it was actually in 2003. Ah, and, the, and we were at the New Victory Theater, mm-hmm. and they were getting together, the, the crew of teaching artists. There were people there, a few people there before me, and then there was a little bit of... Ex- with nobody? Um, so, so 2003, the first time I saw you... Yeah was shortly after Edie hired me and right. sh- and after I started working there, maybe a couple of days actually after I started working there. And then when I started to get to know you was maybe a couple of weeks later after we had hired the first um, quote unquote class of teaching artists. Um, and that was you and Adrian Capstein and Spica. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Um, and I I was new to this field then. I just graduated from NYU. I'd te- been teaching at Roundabout for only about a year, uh, maybe a little longer, and just sort of dipping my toe into this field. And then I I don't recall exactly like the moment that I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> but whoa, he, whoa, whoa, I have a lot to learn. And... I'm a little afraid of him <laughs> in a good way because he sees things in ways I never have thought of. And so I need to pay attention to this one. I remember you being very strong. I, I mean, I th- remember thinking of you as, as a very strong administrator with a, a sense of grounding and maturity and your voice, which is as a, you know, a, a, a timbre, a deep uh, role to it. Mm. Um, and very serious, very serious young woman. I was serious. Yeah, with a nice, you know that 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 laugh that breaks through, but very serious. <laughs> but that laugh is you can't really, you can't see, yeah. you can't stop it. Joy, you see, joy. Nobody in this business is any good is is uh, you know separated from joy. If if they if they don't have joy, then they're not going to be out, any get, good at go it. Do yeah, go do else. something else. <laughs> No, you definitely need joy yeah. and lightness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I was just trying to, especially in that, that first year, at least I was, um, uh, I was trying to make an impression. Really? And, oh yeah. Because, um, you know, I was working for Edie who I had heard about all throughout my graduate career. Yeah. Cause she was like an idol, like an icon. Still is. Yeah. Still is. Absolutely. And, um, uh, and she also was, you know, doing and saying things that were like, oh, my God, I'm so happy that I'm working here. I'm going to, you know, soak every part of this up. But I also have to sort of prove that I belong here. Wow. I mean, those are sort of thoughts in my head. You know, obviously, I didn't always act we're that way. all but. fronting. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> all the time. But what, what, what was interesting to me was actually, you know, while as much as thought had been going on prior to me working there I did have a I had experience and questions and ideas that were um helping and contributing and growing and for me I think the the big thing and I said this to Edie because you know I interviewed her there are four acts (laughs) it was like four to five hours of conversation um but I had uh, that first day of the first training with that first cohort right Edie was sitting on the stairs I don't know if you remember this, but she was sitting on the stairs and we were all sort of sitting on the floor on that red and green carpet. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, thanks for taking this journey with us. And we're going to 
be learning alongside all of you as we start to develop what this is and how we work together. And that, you know, after a week or, or two of working there, we've already hired, like I've gotten hired, we've already hired a set of teaching artists and she, your leader says that. Yeah. I was like, oh. She's very open. She's very I, willing, I mean, very so strategically mm-hmm. uh, aware of of her power and, and tactically made this decision always to, to share power, which is a huge risk. Um, and to say she didn't know and to really give people the ability to d- decide, um, make significant decisions about what direction they were going in. Um, I think she, administratively, if administration is a creative act, like she just really showed me how you do it slowly, incrementally, and with intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never put herself in the center of it, but she was always a strong, you know, it always, you knew it was coming f- f- from her, from her decision to, to create an open space, this, uh, this arena in which a lot of people were uh, allowed to play. You know, she really it protected that. And I know more about what that means now after having some experience being in a, in, you know, a leadership position mm-hmm. about the things she had to do to make that so. Yeah. So I love her. Yeah, no, I mean. She, and I, she chose I, you. I think that's funny. Now, I hadn't really thought about this, but putting now that we're sitting across from each other, I'm like, oh, in one, you know, in one month, <laughs> Edie Deem has hired us. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually she had hired everybody on that panel mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she was like, can you, can you blame me? And um, no, yeah, <laughs> no, she, I can't. She casts well. <laughs> um, where okay. did you grow up? Oh, that's nobody's business. Okay. <laughs> in the South, can you do a region? No, oh. I grew up in the States like everybody else. <laughs> okay. My father was in the service. Mm-hmm. I had a very nice upbringing. Okay, so how were, how did you engage in the arts as a kid? I was in The Wizard of Oz in like the ninth grade, and I played the lion. I think I also played Danny Zuko. And then before that, I had been in like theater classes and acting classes uh, on uh, some community center somewhere. Um, I was in drama club all through high school. And I was in the Imagination Celebration at the Kennedy Center when I was like in my senior year of high school, oh. which was a big deal because you had to audition mm-hmm. and uh, you made a play and then they put the play on. And so that was kind of life changing. I was a, a thespian in Maryland in the, in the Thespian Association. So I know that I was like in a one act play festival and uh, I won some award for either acting or directing. I can't remember. And that's all in the past. All in the past, and now I'm I'm an so you old live in man. you live in the future. You don't you don't like to like reminisce. The past isn't real anyway, isn't it though? No, not really. But it happened. No, only thing that's happening is now. Mm-hmm. You can't really believe and trust that the past actually happened in the way that you think it happened. You can only live in the moment, be here now. Yeah, but but wouldn't you say that experiences that you've had as a child impact who you are as an adult? If you want them to. Or not. You can identify how they're impacting you and then you can yeah. you can decide whether or not you want to have that be impactful or not. Mm-hmm. Everything is a choice. So in, in terms of, of engaging the arts and, and playing Danny Zuko or being in the show at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. Um, how, you know, like the arts were something how you know how did you see the arts as a kid what was it an access point for you or did you just have fun oh i think i really loved being on stage i think i really wanted to be uh, at various points in my life in the theater i think that i'm am a theater person or i'm trained as a theater artist and uh i love to sing and i love to perform um i also like to uh, experience theater as a, you know, as, a, as an audience member um, and as a reader, you know, as to, to, to read plays. Uh, 
so yeah, I mean, I had a love of, of, of the arts, the, of the performing arts when I was in high school and middle school and, and probably always. I think my first play that I remember was in the library or the media center, as we used to call it then, the media center in my elementary school, and they did Puss in Boots, and I was in love. Well, first of all, he, he was, I was, you know, I had a big crush on uh, the, the little boy in my class, um, and I wanted to be the center of attention uh, like he was. And I loved the story mm-hmm. of this trickster cat, you know, this cat that, that wore a hat and had boots. Um, <laughs> so I if say what was my first love of theater, it would have been in the media center, mm. um, watching that play in a circle with the other children and done by children who are a little bit like, well, I think they were one grade older. Mm-hmm. So I always knew that you could, and we sang at home, you know, my, my family is very musical. And uh, I always knew that you had to train. And I always was in classes for that. And they were self-directed. Nobody told me, nobody was pushing me into doing it. It was stuff that I did on my own. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, if the question is, is it important for a young person to be exposed to the arts when, when they're young? The, the answer is yes, and it does. Um, it does require that we create spaces for young people, no matter what their age, to be able to in, in, investigate that. Even if they're not going to co- going to pursue it as a career, mm-hmm. they need that space to uh, to try it out. Um, I think it's good for everybody, and it informs my practice now in that I know uh, what it's like to be uh, on stage and what it requires. And, um, and I have some tactics and things that I can use in the classroom that are based in my, my training in theater. Mm. Um, and I view the, the classroom as a, as a th- the environment of the classroom is something that I use theater approaches to uh, when teaching or designing. And yeah, so there should be lots of spaces for that. We should mm. be fighting for funding mm. in that space. Mm-hmm. You can't expect to have an artistic uh, a healthy artistic community or uh, if you don't invest in it f- from the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like, Hey, you know, let's focus on the, what do they still say? The four R's, the reading, writing, arithmetic, mm-hmm. which of course is wrong. Mm-hmm. No one ever says that there's no such thing. Arithmetic starts with an A. Well, now it's yeah. STEM. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love STEM, STEAM. I think that's really art is the answer no matter the question. Mm-hmm. That's really where we come Ooh, down. Oh, I to. like that. Art yeah. is the answer no matter the question. Really, give me a question and 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 say you need a solution and you can approach it, but you'll never solve it without art. Mm. We are it. This is it. This is why we are. This is what makes us human. It is this it, somewhere in in art is the solution to every problem. It is it is in the mix everywhere Mm -hmm. i want the arts to be even more central the core of like society they're central to human experience sorry it's central to human experience there's Mm -hmm. it is human experience but i want it to be like practicing i want practices like you said you've used some of your the techniques that you learn in in your theater making or your theater technique and learning in your teaching sure i obviously that's that's a lot of what we a lot of us do as as teaching artists and arts educators but i my concept is you know how can we actually bring some of those same practices into um other ways other structures and and procedures within society oh you can do it from how you have team meetings so you know you can call your team an ensemble mm-hmm. um you can use the habits of mind of of artists that you know the, the the or you can acknowledge the fact that the habits of mind of artists have been adopted by every other field so the scientific method is is totally comparable to the creative process mm-hmm. there's no you don't even need to it's a one-to-one you don't even need to 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 shift over i mean all those stages of from you know of doing an experiment all the way to to, to having your final product are the same uh you also, I think, have to stop thinking or we have to stop thinking about uh, forms of art that we think are acceptable as being, you know, the only the only way. I mean, mm-hmm. Instagram 
is art. You know, Snapchat is art. All the young people are interested in is art. That's all people say, oh, if only they were interested in culture. Well, they are. That's all they're interested right. in. Mm-hmm. They're not interested in anything but art, music and fashion. You just don't dig it. So whose fault is it? It's not their fault. They love art. They just don't like what you like. But you'll be dead. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think as I get older, I still am recognizing like how much I don't know. Um, but I'm, I, I continually, especially now, I feel like, you know, that mystical time of the sixties, yeah. <laughs> it feels like, you know, there was the way that people look back at it or describe it is that it was a tumultuous time and it was this clashing of cultures sure. and all that. And, and maybe because I'm older now and I, and I do work with kids and I embrace like I want to know what they're interested in and I don't think that what they're interested in is like crazy. I just want to know how do we continue to reach and use theater as a vehicle for them to be able to find ways to express themselves Mm -hmm. in the ways that they already do and in new ways that maybe they don't know that then they can find a way to utilize however they wish. Mm -hmm. So that, that, um, that idea of like our way is the right way. Right. feels very similar to how the sixties were now does that make sense that's and human. maybe that's every generation and i just don't i'm not paying attention it is absolutely every generation every mm-hmm. generation looks back i think at young people and says oh you know what are they doing and it's ridiculous and they mourn the loss of things that were familiar to them and that's yeah and i, I don't normal. understand why like millennials are vilified <laughs> or gen z like, all, what's that it, about it's always been so I mean, I guess people, Gen X was too. Yeah, people think you know Elvis is hugely popular, and I think we always loved Elvis, but they they, they were they hated Elvis, mm-hmm. you know, and and they, they said it was terrible. And the Beatles had long hair. I mean, it's all all always been that way. Mm. That's just natural to to. That's what people do. That's what we do, and um, it's no different now. Uh, but time will fix that. And then soon it'll be their turn to look back and <laughs> and say, oh, <laughs> where's Ariana Grande when you need her? Mm-hmm. Right? Interesting. So a couple of things that were when you were talking about, uh, um, you know, the different kinds of performances that you were in and being at that, that Puss in Boots made me think about the library. Yeah. My local. So the other day, somebody um, that I went to high school with. Um, who still lives in my hometown, uh, I think was uh, running to be on the board of trustees for the the local library. Um, And I sort of said, you know, wow, it's so interesting. I was just talking about the New York Public Library at work and that library, I love going to that library. I just like love going to libraries. Um, My mom was a librarian um, and I spent so much time at our local library from the time that I was at the very before I can remember being in the children's section or the children's center, which was its own, like it was a very big room, but it has had its own section and its own little play area that then also would have little plays and stories Mm. and films and, you know, it was all this programming for kids. And then the microfiche, remember microfiche and like watching films on microfiche, like Charlie and the chocolate factory and Annie right <laughs> and, and like Heidi um well, and I was in a book club yeah. that I never read the books yeah. because I'd always choose like I like somebody would choose it for me instead of me <laughs> choosing it I'd be like all right and then you had to go back and like say and tell them what the book was about and I would just make it up <laughs> <laughs> make up stories they're like you didn't read this I'm like no because I didn't want to right war and peace was about war and peace <laughs> exactly but that lib- But then as I got older, that library became like the place that I studied, the place that I hung out after yeah. school, the place where, you know, when I first graduated from college, I went back home and I would go, oh, oh no, I went and I, I researched schools yeah. and, you know, figured out which schools I was going to apply to at the library and then did it. I remember... Also, I worked at the library. I was the film lady. Wow. Yeah, I was the AV media arts. Yes. I was in the media arts yeah. department. Yeah, that was and your I generation, would play, media yeah. arts. A- AV club. AV was club. AV. I was that for the library. We would play the movies, you know, that were no longer in the theater. Yeah. And all the old people would come. Yeah. 
It was my favorite. You know what my 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 favorite thing was? Well, <laughs> I have two two ridiculous stories. One is it was back. You know, I don't think they still have this, but like films when they were out, like they they were two machines, and you had to like switch over to the other machine at yeah. a certain point. And yeah. if you got it wrong, it was really like yeah. intr- intrusive to the yeah. viewing experience. Mm-hmm. At one time. Yeah, switch the reel. <laughs> I switched the reel. Yeah. I switched was the reel. Was that your job? That was my job. And I you was ruined to set it. it up. And I you ruined it. I you had one job. I fell asleep. And I you never fell stopped. asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep. The, mo- the movie had three switches. And by the second one, I. You were done. Was done. It was yeah. so late. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and it was just. It's probably, it was like gone with the wind like, or something. People are like, what's Screaming your name. I was not great at that job. Where's that girl? The other other thing that I did is I would have to set up like the microphone, right? And there's some fashion show or something where I was setting up the podium and it had a mic. And I, I don't know what happened, but I just went into this, like, I'm hosting this thing. And so I'm testing the mic and I am just going on and on and on. And some, I think it was my boss came in and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what? The mic. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, I was a senior in high school. <laughs> it's a mess. You can draw a straight line from there to, to here, right? You look, Absolutely. Yeah, you're loving. You, you see, this is theater. This is theater. It's true. Who who is the audience for this? Um, I that's a good question. We should ask the people who are listening. Does that change audience? how we talk? No, no, no. Um, mostly, I think the 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 very loyal. And there are loyal listeners. There are. Uh, oh yes. Um, it's mostly arts educators and artists. Hi everybody. Hi everybody. Hi artists. This is Courtney Body's uh, teaching artistry. Um, my name is Michael Wiggins. I'm an arts educator. Right on. I don't really know why I'm here. Um, I do. Courtney knows. <laughs> She's going to tell us. Yes. Um, as I said, I talk about you all the time hilarious um anyway i think we would have been really good friends in high school <laughs> if we knew each other i think so <laughs> i yeah i think that would be uh, why weren't you there because i'm younger than you where were you when i needed you <laughs> well i came into your life when you needed me most Just when i needed you it's most. true yes it's true no, I think you're right that there are certain people that come into your life that you're like, you were always here. I just didn't know it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So we've gone a little bit through your past. I think, I think, um, just to, to pick up on what you're saying about yeah. the, um, mm-hmm. kids needing to have access to a lot of different things, including the arts. Sure. And that the, what's, what I love about the arts is how, how many different forms and genres there are because, you know, again, if it's not something that a kid is going to become a professional in, doesn't mean that they're not, they don't deserve it. No, we should, be, uh, everybody should be in a space where we, we've lost the social connections that, I mean, they didn't even exist in, in you know, in, in my time, but I think singing is natural mm-hmm. to humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look uh, around the world, uh, it persists. People want to sing in groups. So there should be, we shouldn't be encouraging young people to, to sing, uh, even if they're not quote unquote good at it. Uh, I think it frees the soul. I think it's, uh, I mean, there must be research that shows that it changes, uh, how you feel when you sing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm certain of it. That's just anecdotal. I, I don't have to be a scientist to know that singing is, uh, something that people do f- f- when they're sad to, to change the, their state, that to change their feelings. Mm. Um, we sing to celebrate, we sing to mourn, we sing whenever there's something to mark. So why shouldn't we have this opportunity uh, always? If I choose uh, to, to, to go, there should be a place for me to go and sing when, when I'm a, a, a child. Our um, our uh, producer Ben Weber does um, songs. Yeah, song I, I love them. I'm obsessed it's with really, it. Really, I went to one once, and it, <laughs> he does a lot. But I went to one once, and I, when you said something about singing to mourn and singing to celebrate, I was actually taking singing lessons with Heidi Stallings, and and Shoba and I actually shared the lessons. And right before my, my father passed away yeah. and I stopped immediately yeah. after because I could like the kind of work 
that she was having us do was really coming from this approach of like right acting and really getting underneath that yeah. the lyrics as text yeah. and understand you know that same kind of approach and i just thought that's too much i can't do it yeah. and she had really helped my vo- like my voice was sounding like i don't i've never sung like that before and i yeah. was in chorus or sang in church and uh, and it, it was amazing so it, when you said that it just flashed back i was like maybe i should take singing lessons again yeah i think it's maybe very it's time if, if i'm not singing every day uh for pleasure i'm i'm not as well i, mean, I don't feel as well as i as what do I you can. sing I sing everything. I sing whatever floats my boat. I sing show tunes. I sing pop songs. I sing snatches of uh, things that I have heard. I'm really terrible, I think, probably with lyrics uh, increasingly, but I sing at work, uh, sometimes quite loudly, um, and I always feel better. We have a quite a, a, a um, in our department, or at least in our office, we have quite a few musical theater yeah. folks. And so there's always, always singing. Yeah. And on Friday, yesterday, actually, I was singing, like just singing to sing. Like yeah. I was singing, like, I'm doing this. and um, yeah. no, 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 no. I think we sang Shallow yesterday <laughs> as a group. Yeah. Oh, I can't. It's just earworms. No, no, please. No, no. Gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> too late it's in there i don't know the words i don't know the, i don't really know we don't we don't have we don't have the rights for that we don't have the right you can't can't sing it just a snatch of that just a few bars yeah okay so no, what's happening now so <laughs> now we're just you really now you think to yourself you know this was probably a mistake i mean i just let's start over no 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 Okay. So when did you, when did, okay. So you, you said that you trained in, in college. I went to, uh, I, I went to undergrad mm-hmm. at, um, GW, but I didn't finish. And then I went to grad school at NYU. Uh, wait, how did you do that? Because I said, I'm 27 and I need to go to grad school to be an actor. And I, I didn't finish my undergrad degree and they said, well, why don't you go back to undergrad? And I said, because I'm 27 <laughs> and I'm not. And I, so I was applying to the NYU graduate acting program. It's an MFA program mm-hmm. and they let me in and that's where I went. Wow. So the goal was to become an actor at that point. Mm-hmm. At 27. Knew? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd been doing work before that. What were you doing before that? I don't know. Stuff and things. Acting. <laughs> Were you doing it professionally? Yeah. In where? In New York? Yeah. So was it like downtown theater or were you equity? I don't remember. Yeah, I was equity. You mm-hmm. oh. I think I've been a member of Actors Equity since like 1991 or something. Wow. I paid my dues last month, so I'm still, I still have a union card. That's great. Yeah. Um, so when did, you get, when did you move to New York? I moved to New York when I was um, 19, 18, 19. And what did you do when you first got here? So that's why you didn't finish college. Is that right? If, yes. If you were 18. Okay. So what did you do when you first got here? Uh, I was a member of the AIDS Coalition to, to Unleash Power, ACT UP. So that was kind of central to my life. I was an ACT UP. So I was at the, you probably find me at the center on Monday nights um, with the rest of the activists. Mm-hmm. And so that would be starting in, on 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a downtown activist kind of running around doing whatever mm-hmm. uh that was the defining period of my young adulthood was uh being a member of of act up i was in the majority actions committee and uh we planned and did demonstrations uh with act up and oh, oh sorry what is act up act up is the aids coalition to unleash power okay so um they met at the gay and lesbian community center uh down at 13th Street mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that big room on the first floor and there were Monday night meetings and that's where you were because we were in the middle of a of a plague mm-hmm. and I was you know at that point I was 1920 so from like 20 from I guess 1988 to 1992 that kind of stuff was the most central to my experience mm-hmm. 
and are um how how are you i mean i know a lot of people were impacted by the plague or aids and and so you're active you're an activist but were you losing friends certainly family friends 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 and lovers yeah mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. and what were you listen this is a time where i was in high school and i was so far removed from all of this yeah so whatever you feel comfortable saying but i do i'm really curious about i'm curious about two things um less so like you don't need to go too down into your own um feelings and thought processes if you don't want to but like how were you you actively using arts as part of your activism i was doing shows um probably i i know i did shows at like um Manhattan Class Company and we you know that 42nd Street Plaza where there used to be a lot of ramshackle theaters on like 42nd. Oh, theater and, Row? Yeah, Theater Row, yeah. like 42nd and 9th. So yeah. little small theater companies there. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of readings and I mean, uh, plays, you know, independent plays uh, during that time. Um, I think I probably did a few, uh, maybe one or two like indie movies. Um, when I was an AIDS activist, I worked retail. I was running around doing other things, um, which we won't discuss. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was I was a kid in New York. You know, I was from the time I was nineteen. I was here. I came with probably I don't know less than three hundred dollars. I was living the life that you live when you're a kid with very little money in New York. So you can imagine. And now I'm who I am. And I guess when I, when I get older, maybe I will talk, we, you know, we can talk a lot about that, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Everything is so clean now and different but yeah there was a time where you were a kid he michael wiggins was a kid with no money who came from a kind of middle class background and was running around new york doing things that kids in that situation do or have to do Mm -hmm. and when did you segue like when was being like an were you teaching at all at that time? Yeah. Or yeah, I, I think I was I'm, probably yeah. doing some things involving teaching. Um, I mean, I don't remember. Right? Yeah. I don't I don't know. You know, I was it, it was 19 I was dancing and running and all of that and trying not to die mm. and burying people and living and loving and we had my little leather jacket burying on. Burying people? Sure. What do, what do you mean by that? I said burying, burying. Oh, burying. Oh, yeah. burying. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. I thought you heard. I thought you said burying. Uh-huh. Tink- and I was like, you know, burying like, people, uh, burying people, burying people. Mm. Yeah. There are a lot of. Um, Would you like to see a photo? There's a photo. You can see me. I was. I was yeah. very. I was very. I'll never be any better looking. <laughs> You're pretty Time good looking flies. right now. I was adorable. <laughs> And I had really cool friends. I mean, I don't know. Like, there was a woman a few, maybe a year and a half ago that I used to work with. I used to work at, like, um, a makeup store on Lexington Avenue and, uh, like, 63rd. And there was a woman who was my, she was my boss, but she wasn't much older than me. And she's now in fashion. And she posted on her Instagram a picture of me from when I was, like, 19. Stop. And she's like, she, and she, I think she thought I was probably dead. And so she's like, has anybody seen this guy, Michael Wiggins? He was so blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God. You know how it goes. Mm-hmm. And um, now I follow her on Instagram. But, yeah, I mean, it was a different time. And I know what it's like to be a kid or, you know, an, an adult kid under the age of 21 or 21 running around New York during a time when people are dying Mm. and all my friends were queer all my friends before queer was a word i guess before we you know before queer nation Mm. and i didn't know what i was doing but i made it 
a lot of people didn't make it, but I did. You did. Yeah. Aren't I lucky? You can keep talking. I'm looking for this picture. I know on my you phone. are. I'm. I'm trying to think of the right question to ask you. I know, I right? Know it's all supposed to be so picture. easy. And then I went to high school, and then I went no, to college. No, no, it's not I didn't that. do any of that. <laughs> I didn't do any of it right. No, I think that's why. I feel like we grew up in very similar homes. Um, you said middle class, mm-hmm. black. Uh, very. What were you? Was your neighborhood? Um, I grew up in a military family, so I was oh, always so you're in all integrated spaces. Integrated, right. Great. Yeah, so same. And the expectations of, um, like, my sister's journey was not a traditional journey. But then the expectation for me was to have that traditional journey. Yeah. I'm, I didn't have a choice whether I was going to college or not. Right. I wanted to, yeah. but I did not have a choice. Like, it was, you are going. It's just a matter of where and how. And, um, I remember saying to my dad when I, I decided I was going to grad school, which was around the same age, I was about 27, maybe 28, something like that. And my dad said, you always said that you didn't have a choice whether you were going to go to college or not. And now you're going to grad school. Well, see. And I was like, yeah, now it is my choice. I'm choosing to go because this is what I want. Yeah. But you know you oh you know that if i hadn't gone to college that i i would have been lesser than in your eyes oh and he was like i would never and i was like no you don't get to say that no now it doesn't matter the fact that i wanted to go yeah but i didn't have a choice because my sister didn't go you could feel it my sister ended up going eventually yeah. she was when she was ready and she was the, you know, I think my sister and I often are very, very different, but in actuality we were probably more alike than I <laughs> wish to, I care to admit, but like, you know, you do things when you're ready and she wasn't ready yeah. at 18. She was ready much later in life and she went and she went and she knew what she wanted to do then. Whereas for me, like I knew things like, you know, the sort of pressure that you get, you flew, you, you ran away. It sounds like you were like, I gotta go. And it wasn't, and it wasn't pressure. I didn't have pressure on me to be no. or, or do anything. I mean, I was like, how personal is this podcast? I mean, I, I'm not, I, it's as personal as you want it to be. Okay. Well, no, I didn't have, I, I don't, I didn't have pressure to go and be anything. I think I had uh, a lot of love and not and a lot and a lack of understanding about uh, what, there was no pressure on me to do anything. We, mm-hmm. who, who, there was no direction to do anything. So mm-hmm. like I applied to one college because mm-hmm. nobody noticed that I hadn't. <laughs> and it's not that they didn't care. I they just the didn't same know. Way. And it's funny because my parents were educators and they just be like, well, okay, here's, here's what you have to do. And then I had to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I, I would be the one to say, I want to go to ballet class. Okay. I think that might be, Where? I really think, I really, I, was, I think a lot about it because I think like, why didn't they like explain everything yeah. and fix everything? I didn't know what everything? the SATs were. No, because I think that they, imagine how they had to do it mm. and I think they felt like, not even felt like, mm-hmm. I think it's like, if they could get through what they got through, it can't be that hard. I mean, they got you to, they got you to the, to the, the teachers will tell you. Yeah. They got you there. Mm-hmm. And so I think they did a lot. I mean, I know my parents did a lot, but, but, uh, yeah, basically it's, it was totally they were figure also it out. Busy, right. I, yeah. I, I felt like my, it's definitely, they were both very busy. They had a lot of extra things and it was all about making sure we had, Mm -hmm. we were able to stay in that middle class. Absolutely. Because of capital. So if you look Mm -hmm. at the numbers, you know, you realize that black wealth in America is like zilch. You know, they did this study in Boston where they were like, I think the average white family in terms of assets, you know, when you calculate wealth, you're like the houses that you own, the cars that you own, and then you take away the the debits, you know, the, what you owe on your loans, all that stuff, your student loans, they take that away. So the average white family has like, you know, it was over a hundred thousand dollars worth of, of wealth. You know, this is what they, these are their assets. And the average black family had like $8. People are like, oh, that's a typo. And it's like, no, actually... $8 of what? When you calculate it all, like 
we as a we as a community, black people, we don't have capital. We we're because also I'm like what the second generation that had any real assets anyway. My dad, and before that, my mother. You know, they, my father comes from a family of sharecroppers, and my mother, we, my one of my mother's first jobs was picking cotton, and she was a little girl. So like, this is, uh, I mean, when you're talking about our history and what we've got access to as, as people of color in America mm-hmm. and people are like, it's all about personal responsibility. It's like call bullshit. Cause people of color, black people in this country come from, it's just so simple that you don't even want to talk about it anymore. It's like exhausting. Yeah. My father must be a genius because he's got assets now and he had to work really, really hard. So whatever he did or didn't do for me, he did a whole lot Mm. and I mean it must have been freaking exhausting to get from where he got to where he is Mm -hmm. and I've had it's it's nothing compared to what I've had to face but yet and still it's so hard to get that scratch together Mm -hmm. to get a house Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah I mean like my my parents didn't own property until the 2000s yeah um they they made choices that were about education and about other kinds of things for yeah. us. So as you, if you beat yourself, I mean, I, I listen to colleagues, you know, um, African-American black colleagues who are like, oh, I should have done better with this and just really somehow beating themselves up about where they are financially and all this stuff. It's like, man, if, we, if you've managed to stay middle class this long, you're working hard mm-hmm. because we are basically this, this, the second wave generation that that had any agency mm-hmm. whatsoever to do this kind of stuff my father did not come from a generation my you know george bush's father voted against the civil rights act of 1963 or 65 whatever and my father was born in the in the early 40s so he, he did not live a fully enfranchised existence mm-hmm. for, for a significant part of his adult life mm-hmm. And yet he managed to get me this far, mm-hmm. get us this far. Mm-hmm. And my my mother, same thing. Those people are absolute heroes. Absolutely. I'm very tired of talking about that kind of stuff in public too. It just... Uh, but I think, here's the thing. I get that you're tired of, of talking about it, but yeah. I think that it's important because I, I definitely think that what I highlight are the things that where I wish, I wish, I wish, as opposed to what they did. So I'm wondering, like, for me, you know, whose point of view am I actually coming from? Well, you know, you can only you can only talk from your own experience. Feelings are very important. So, like, I feel Mm -hmm. really like sometimes, oh, I wish it had been easier. I wish it were easier even now. And I forget to be grateful. So sometimes like yesterday, you know, I will take a step and say thank you for every step I take. Breathe out a, a, a moment of gratitude um, and that reframes everything for you because it, 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 they're, I'm absolutely in a fantastic position, much better than I make more money than I ever thought I would ever make in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm healthy and I'm still here. Um, and we forget to be grateful for that moment. We forget to forgive ourselves for not being perfect. Mm-hmm. We forget that there's been very, that we, we didn't have as much as a safety net as uh, our colleagues who, who, you know, many of our colleagues. Um, but these the, the, the conversation has been become so convoluted when it's very simple, you know, 400 years of oppression and I'm tired of, of, of be, I'm not going to beat myself up about how far I've got, gotten based upon the, the chips I got to play with. And I'm tired of people, uh, insinuating that the problem is culture. So if you read, don't read the comment section in the New York times, whenever they write about black people, um, because you you can see that there's America seems to be very tired of of uh, of helping um, those who are uh, you know have economic challenges or, or social challenges and they want to play we always want to place blame on uh, on the children and the, the parents of, of children who are not succeeding when really this is all about uh, America's history and. Uh, but it, for us, just on an individual level, level to survive, I think you just have to acknowledge how fantastic we are mm-hmm. uh, to have survived and how hard that was mm-hmm. and how keeping just keeping your head above water 
is is a triumph and a challenge every day mm. and to be so beautiful i mean look at you <laughs> look at you right <laughs> you know so i don't know I how you're going to use any of this I, stuff we are it's, it's ridiculous all usable nope I, it's all usable everything this is this is part of the conversation is that what i this is what this podcast is exploring is how do we in the how do we do our work in the context of society of our society well, how do we do we acknowledge first of all that we are doing our work within the context uh-huh. of society because exactly. people are like oh no this is just a space for blah blah no. but it's not it's impossible exactly. it's impossible so when someone's standing there and you're like with fifth graders and someone you know teaching artists who maybe doesn't get it or administrators like what's going on with you children what is wrong with you it's like there's nothing wrong with no. them there's nothing wrong with them there's nothing wrong with them it's us if they are not, you know, cooperative and compliant in this moment, if you don't feel that your coercion is not enough to get them to do what you want to do, whose fault is it? It's not their fault. They're acting as all people do in what they think is their best self-interest. So there is a mistaken belief here. And we have to look at what we have done and, and how we're complicit in that. And we have to tactically think about, you know, rather than let's stop and let's place blame because, you know what, whose fault is it? we need to make some choices to inform the next step or next action to get where we know we want to get to. You cannot dismiss how that hidden or even unspoken anger Mm. at the fact that stuff is messed up in your classroom at the moment poisons your ability to get to the spot you want to get to. Mm. So my next theory, and the only one I'm working on, even though I'm furious all the time, is how love is the answer. And love is real. Love Love informs every action that you do. Mm -hmm. And when it works, it's because of love. And when it doesn't, it's because you truly don't love them. And you need to Mm -hmm. look at yourself. You need to look at yourself and realize how full of it you are because you are not really acting from a space of love. If you were, the stuff would be working. It's your fault. Love is the most powerful force. It is not about being nice. It is not about sweetness. Love is really firm. It defends spaces for effective work. So, for instance, placing a program at the wrong time of day and then expecting children to act right is not an act of love. Just because it's convenient for you doesn't mean it's going to work. So if it's not going to work, you need to face that fact. That's not an act of love. It's like a trap. So we want them to really pay attention. You're working with this group of high school students, for instance. We want them to really pay attention. Let's put the class at 1.30 on Friday and then get mad if they're not paying attention. Whose fault is it? They're teenagers. You're not stupid. You know, it's 1.30 on Friday. They're exhausted and they're looking, for, looking forward to the future. You want them to focus on what you think is important. Then when they don't, you get mad at them and frustrated with them. Why did you put the class then? You know it's not going to work. This particular <laughs> thing is never going to work. Mm. It's, not, it's, it's not their fault. It's your fault. So, and then you say, well, you know, we just have the logistics of the day. Like that, that's the only available time. Well, then I guess you can't do it or you're going to have to figure out something. But children are going to be children. People are going to be people. And you have to meet them where they are. And that is not convenient. Right. So people are like, well, this program doesn't work. You know, it's, it, it, it's mind blowing to me how we can spend $24,000 a year per student. And still, I routinely meet young people of color who come out of this public school system who can't write in a complete sentence, who don't know how to use basic punctuation. And you want to go back to their fifth grade teacher and say, did you not love this child? Like, what happened? Because when they were in fifth grade, you had them. Someone so had them. And, you know, you really, you could have, like, blocked the door. You could have done lots of things to make sure before they left your charge they could do these basic things. And now they're a senior in high school and they can't do it. And you're going to say, oh, well, it's his fault. It's her fault that they don't want to start. Or it must be their parents' fault because they don't have this value of it. They don't value education in their household. And you're just going to go to all of that. You didn't love them. You didn't love them. Just face it. Admit it. I'm just going to note that you're talking to this, um, you're talking to the side, you weren't talking to me specifically, which I, I love that about you, that when you are in those zones, you're like, you've got a character in mind that you're talking to very specifically. Um, I do that too. Um, I'm also talking to myself. So, but love, that yeah. is a very big thing. Um, I didn't, 
have the language of that idea of love until reading or hearing Sean Jin write talk about it. And in this way of this idea about radical healing and thinking about how do we strive for um, the um, young people as well who are living with trauma, as well as the, the adults who work with them to be thriving. And what does that all take? Um, when you and I were working at that middle school, yeah. um, I definitely feel like I was coming from a place of love. Was I fully loving all those kids? I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I know I was not loving those teachers. <laughs> Apathetic the teachers. Teachers. Love the teachers. They were hurt. hurt they teachers. were hurt and they were new and yeah. they were like, you know, uh, meaning I didn't love the way they were in, in engaging right. with the kids. I, I didn't have any problems with them personally, but the, um, but I didn't have the language there yeah. then. And I didn't have the tools. Right. Really. I, I mean, as strong at least. Um, love and Signe talks about love too, yeah. about being able to love a stranger and that, that she just has that capability. Meta, right. You know, mm-hmm. that, that form of generosity, mm-hmm. you start with yourself and then extend the circle mm-hmm. out and out until you have this impartiality uh, of love. Mm-hmm. Constant, constant, yeah. constantly working on that. Thank you for listening to episode 24, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Michael Wiggins, art is always the answer. Join us next time for act two. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Brandon Hutchinson is the media arts coordinator. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry and on Instagram at teaching artistry with CJB. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.